for this morning, my darling? You haven't had breakfast, this is why. <laughs> Sorry, love. <laughs> That'll do for now. Anybody got any milk? It's outside, yeah, lovely. Got a bowl and a large spoon. Stop looking. You can listen to the audio from tomorrow. Or the youth, youth are trying to work out what's going on. Look, I don't know what's going on. Right, would you like to turn to Genesis chapter 50? I'm just going to pray. Lord, we, we believe in your word. We believe what you've given to us, what we call the Bible. Lord, we trust it is your word spoken to mankind through different, through different people over many years. But when brought together as separate documents, we recognize there is a living God at work through this. These are more than words on paper. This is more than just some ink on paper, these are, this is the living word of the living God, revealing himself to mankind at large and notably to his people. And Lord, this is what we believe and I just pray this morning that you will speak to us yet again through this. This may be a passage that's familiar to many of us, it may be brand new to some of us. Either way, may each one of us hear you speak this morning. May each one of us feel that nudge in our heart that that's for you. And that we'll go away from here, not unchanged or indifferent, but we'll go away here from here with something to step into, something to take hold of, something to be challenged by, provoked by, inspired and encouraged by. We just say, God, come and have your way amongst us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We have now reached the finale. Of Genesis, it's been well over 18 months, nearly two years. We've been working our way uh, piece by piece through Genesis with some other things in between. And the uh, big culmination of the book of Genesis is the story of Joseph, which leads up to God's people being in the land of Egypt, which sets the scene for something special that happens 400 years later, which we will find out about next year. Plans for 2016. Exciting. Now, I've got the last nine chapters this morning. I don't think we'll read through all nine chapters. Are you disappointed? Oh, Julian is, look. <laughs> yeah, I did, I did try and give some of this away to Julian. It didn't quite work out. Rightly so, rightly so. The trouble is, this, this last section of Joseph's story, we could read, you can go away and read it. Chapters 42 to 47 is just was one story, but it's in fine detail, and there's a lot of to and fro in. So I'm going to give you an overview of that in a minute. And then we come to the big climax of this story of Joseph and his family and what happens in Egypt. There will be, it's not about meant to be a repetition of all the sermons that have gone before about Joseph, but you will notice a lot of recurring themes because it is all about suffering, about adversity, about hope, about rescue, about God's grace over one man and over others because of him. There will be a repetition in some ways, recurring themes that you hear this morning that you already have heard over the past month or so, but I don't want to just repeat what everyone else has said. So what I want to do 
I want to look at two marks of this final part of the story. An outward mark and an inward mark. An outward mark of what God does through Joseph and an inward mark of what God has done in Joseph. And then we can learn from that ourselves as God's people. I want to talk about signs and symptoms of what it means to be God's people. Is that okay? So, these nine chapters, generally speaking, there's a lot of two in a throw in. There's more two in a throw in than the Chuckle Brothers. You know, to me, to you, there's a lot of that going on in here. Someone laughed. You see, what the trouble is, God has already spoken to Joseph through, he's been, he's been in a pit. He was given a prophetic dream by God. He ended up in, ending up in a pit because of his brothers uh, reviling him. He ended up in Potiphar's house. He then ended up in prison. While he was there, he interpreted two people's dreams. A couple of years later, Pharaoh has some dreams need interpreting. Joseph is the guy who ends up being positioned to be able to do that and actually describes there are seven years of goodness coming to the land, but they will be followed by seven years of famine. And actually it sets the scene for Egypt to be able to fill out their storehouses under the edict of Joseph himself, who's given the prime minister role to do this. They fill up their barns full of food. Egypt are doing all right. Famine has now arrived. They got barns full of food. Other parts of the world, known world at the time, famine, no food. Their boxes, their cupboards, darling, are empty. <laughs> what have you done with my cornflakes? They're in a sandwich bag. Don't worry, darling. <laughs> D- domestic. Canaan, for example, amongst all the other lands around the area, they're running out of food. They're getting desperate. They've got some money. They've got some money, but they've got no food in the cupboards. Egypt has got loads. So, amongst many other people travelling to Egypt to buy some of the food, Jacob, Joseph's dad, he's still back home with the ten brothers who were remaining, or nine brothers who were remaining, and then had little Benjamin, who's the youngest, younger than Joseph. He sends, he sends these brothers to go and get some food. He keeps Benjamin at home. Why? Because he's already lost his youngest son. As far as he's, he's aware, Joseph is dead. He's now got another youngest son. He doesn't want to lose him, does he? So he keeps him at home. But he sends the ten older brothers with some money and their empty cereal box to Egypt. He says, go and buy some food. So they rock on and they turn up here and they ask for some food. They come across Joseph. Dun, 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 drum roll. And in chapter 42, verse 6, It says, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Does that remind us of anything? Ah, right at the beginning of Joseph's story, he's given a dream. And he believes, and as it turns out, it's God telling him that one day all his brothers and his dad will bow down before him. All of a sudden, he's starting to see this happening. There's an opportunity here, isn't there, for revenge. Is there not? So what does Joseph do? He doesn't actually reveal himself. He tries to play a game. He says, you're spies. You're spies in the land. You just come to check out Egypt. You come to spy on us. They're like, no, we're not. No, we're not. Please don't get us wrong. And they explain some of their situation. And we've only lost one brother. But we've got one brother back at home and our dad's back there with him. We're just genuine people. Just desperately need some, need some food. So he goes, okay then. I want you to prove it. He's just heard about this little brother he's never met. I want you to prove it. I want you to go back and get that little brother, because I want to meet him, to prove that you're not lying to me. And he keeps one of the the brothers, Simeon, keeps him bound and in prison, 
says to the rest of you, you go back home, get me this little brother, prove to me you're not spies. Prove to me you're not lying. So they go away with food that they're given. And Joseph says, give them their food, but put their money back in their bags. Because he wants to bless them secretly. Causes more problems for them later. So they go back home to dad. Minus one brother. That was clever, wasn't it? So they've got all their money and some food and one brother less. They've lost another one. And they explain to his dad what's going on. And they say, he wants, that, he wants Benjamin to come back with us. And Jacob is fraught. Jacob is like, I've already lost one son who's now, as far as I'm aware, is dead. I've now lost another son who's now in prison in Egypt. And now you want me to take my youngest son over there as well. So what's going on? By which time they've also discovered their money was still in their bags. So now they're terrified of going back because they'll be called thieves. What a mess. What a mess. It's not something out of a sitcom, isn't it? So what do they do? They stay and eat the food. <laughs> they do. You read it. They don't rush back. They stay and eat the food first. But eventually they run out of food again and they need to go and get some more. So the final agreement is now take Benjamin with them but they're going to take the money that they owe and they're going to take some more money. They're going to take double the money with them and go and get some more food. So they travel all the way back to Egypt. This is exhausting work, this is. So they come back here. So what does Joseph do this time? Still doesn't reveal himself. He invites them round his house. Puts on a big feast. Gives them Simeon back so they get their brother back. And he's looking at his little brother, Benjamin, who he's never seen before, didn't even realise he had. And it just breaks his heart. And he has to go away in secret so he's not seen, and he weeps in secret. I've seen my little brother. So what does he do? He gives them their food, tells his staff to put their money back in their bags, and he puts a silver cup in his youngest brother Benjamin's sack. One of his own cups. He goes, off you go guys, off you go. So they go back with some food. Weetabix this time. Off they go. They're heading home. They're on the journey home. Joseph sends one of his staff. Chase after them. I think they've stolen my silver cup. So they go back over there and check the bags. And whose bag do they find the silver cup in? Little Benjamin's. So it's like, you're a thief. You've got to come back with us. So Benjamin now goes back. And the brothers have to return with their tails between their legs, back to dad, and go, we got Simeon back. Do you want the bad news? We've lost Benjamin now. It's a bit like a pantomime. Jacob is distraught. Oh no, I've got it wrong, halfway through. Halfway through, sorry. When, when um, Benjamin is threatened of being taken away, Judah offers to take his place. Now, if you remember, when Joseph ended up in the pit, Judah was the one who wanted to make money out of this. But what does he do? When youngest brother now, Benjamin, is threatened with being a thief and taken away, he offers to take his place. He offers to sacrifice himself. He said, no, bound me up, take me to prison. Don't take little Benjamin. Which I think is a fascinating echo of sacrifice when, he, when we discover later on he is the forefather of Jesus Christ. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, Judah's own family. And he was willing to offer himself as sacrifice. So they go back home. 
Joseph revealed himself by now because of Judah's sacrifice, willing sacrifice. It just touches something in Joseph's heart. I think this is the reason why it happens at this point. Joseph then reveals himself, who he is, to his brothers and said, get dad and bring him home. Long story short, I don't want to rush on because you can get bogged down in the details. You see what I mean? There's lots of to and fro in. But eventually, they all end up in Egypt. Let's bring all their money and all their cereal over here. They all end up in the land of Egypt. And they're all together, happy families, reunited. Jacob's got all his sons back right now. We then get chapters 48 and 49 where there are blessings on the sons and blessings on the grandkids. And then we end up at chapter 50 and things change. See, 17 years, Jacob and the family, 70 of them all together because they've got the grandkids and the wives. All the family and dad Jacob are all reunited with Joseph and 17 years, they're all together in Egypt and then Jacob dies. Dad dies. Now here's the first point I want to make about the outward influence, what God can do through his people. Chapter 50, let's read the first three verses. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This is when he's died. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. This next sentence. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Now, I've read that before and it's just been a sentence and I carried on to the next one. This is significant. Really significant. Two interesting facts. Hebrews were reviled by Egyptians. Couldn't stand them. Do you know who else they reviled? Shepherds. Couldn't stand them. Jacob and his family and Joseph, what are they? They're Hebrews and they're shepherds. <laughs> Egyptians should hate the sight of them. And yet because of Joseph, they end up weeping for his dead dad for 70 days. The whole nation end up weeping for this Hebrew shepherd. What's happened here? What's happened here? So I want to talk about influence. God's people, being faithful, don't have to try hard to conspire events or to get things into conversation. Just being yourself, you have influence. Joseph, just by being himself, didn't manipulate his way into different situations. Didn't use clever business acumen necessarily to get himself into clever in getting himself into convenient and opportune situations. He was just being himself, wasn't he? And what did God do? Positioned him and positioned him and positioned him and he had increasing influence and he ended up in a place where he affected a whole nation. See, this wasn't just about one man learning a lesson and changing because of adversity. This is about a man and two nations. The ripple effects, aren't there? Getting to a point where Egyptians who hate Hebrew shepherds end up weeping for one they've never really met for 70 days. It's enormous, isn't it? That one sentence that you can just read in passing is huge. 
This is about being salt and light. Jesus in Matthew 5 talks about us being salt and light. He doesn't tell us to try to be salt and light. He doesn't tell us to try to be salty or to be light people. He tells us we are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are. It's a fact just by being his. See, I'm not a big fan of the idea of Christian governments, I'll be honest with you. It makes me twitchy. It's coercion from the top down and enforcing values and lifestyles on people who don't believe. When you think about it, does that make sense? In the Old Testament, there were rules for the Jewish nation because they were God's people. So all of them were expected to be God's people. So there was an expectation on values, an expectation on lifestyle because of who they believed in. And anybody who wanted to be part of the Jewish nation could be adopted in and they adopt that lifestyle. That's different. But this side of Jesus... We are meant to be amongst the world. We're in the world and not of the world to try to enforce on them how they should live according to how we believe we should live. It's two different things. It can cause more problems than we think it will fix. However, we are salt and light, which means we have influence, which means people in media and in art and in government, there is an expectation for us to be in those places and to make a difference from the inside out. Not to control but to be a difference amongst everyone else. Does that make sense? What does salt do? It preserves, it flavours, it enhances, it melts ice also. There's, there's something about salt that just affects its culture it's in for the better, whatever food it's affecting and so on, or the ice as well, of course. And what does light do? It energises, it reveals just us being faithfully God's people, we have influence. We don't have to conspire things, and small things can end up being big things. Let me give you an example. My friend Matt, he lives in Oxford, goes to our church over there, and um, they used to have their uh, monthly prayer meetings in a, an Asian cultural centre. It was just a convenient little venue that they used to hire out. So they used to have their monthly prayer meetings as a church in this venue. It's in a multicultural dis- district in Oxford, Asian cultural centre they used to hire out have their prayer meetings. And so afterwards, they always used to go to a Lebanese restaurant nearby called Shiraz, where they go and have hummus and some, uh, some uh, Middle Eastern food. And they just got to know the staff. And they got to know the manager really well. They just went there month in, month out. Matt what? So you know Matt. And they got to know one particular waiter called Sammy. And just became good friends. They used to just hang out afterwards. And then one time, he said... Uh, we're having iftar, which is the breaking of their Ramadan fast. So we're having iftar. I would love if you guys would like to come along. So that, and it actually happened to be in the Asian Cultural Centre where they used to have their prayer meetings in the same venue. So they just went along and just hung out at the back and ate the food and had a lovely time. And all these Muslims were just gathering for their feast, for their, uh, for their festivities. And they were just made friends. This went on for months. This went on for years. It was the second year, second or third year, might be even after two years, they went along to this iftar event again, eating the food, being friends. They were just being God's people. They weren't trying hard to conspire anything at all, get anything into conversation. They were just being salt and light. And all these Muslims were sitting in this big circle, all facing inwards and receiving teaching and so on. And Matt and the gang, just a few of them, just standing at the back, just, just listening, just being there. And then the imam said, we've got our Christian friends here with us. Perhaps you'd like to sit in the middle and just tell us a bit more about yourselves. So they sat in the middle and just started talking about who they were and that. And he goes, please tell us about your belief about Jesus Christ. 
And they got to share the gospel <laughs> in the middle of a crowd of Muslims just because every step of the way they've just been faithfully just been God's people. Salt and light. Do you see what happens? There is a uh, sociologist at Princeton University in America. He's done these studies and he said for the quality of a culture to be changed dramatically, all it takes is 2% of the people to have a new vision. 2%. That's not a lot, is it? Now, I know in this nation numbers are falling, but it has been one in two people have declared themselves to be nominally Christian. I think that's even less now. And one in ten say they attend church at some point in a year. It's far less than that that actually are generally saved and added to the local church. But 2% can make a difference, can't we? For the better, for what we believe God has put us here for. See, we're the church. We're not a club. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for others. We're here to make a difference. Because when Joseph died, within 50 years, Egypt had fallen into chaos and the Hebrews were in slavery. The influence of God's man. Not just his presence, but also his absence. See the difference? So what was it about this guy that made him so special? What was it about him to be used in such a big way? See, it's not because he was a very righteous man, so God chose him. It's not because he earned God's favour, so God used him in a big way. It's just because he was God's man. God chose him because he chose him. God chose you because he chose you. Not because he likes the colour of your hair, or how good you are in secret, or what you do with your money, or how hard you try to be nice. He chose you because he chose you, because he loves you. And it's the same with Joseph. And so he was just faithfully being God's man, Every step of the way. You see, we have to understand that Joseph did not receive a pouring of God's grace at certain points. He was being really blessed with God's favour when he was given the coat and the dreams, when he was living it up with his brothers. But then it all disappeared when he ended up in the pit. And he was given God's favour in Potiphar's house because God's grace was pouring on him, but then he ended up in prison. But then God's grace came upon him again when he became prime minister. No, God's grace was with him every step of the way. Never stopped. God's grace was with him in the prophetic dream and in the pit and in Potiphar's house and in the prison and in the Prime Minister's chair. God's grace doesn't turn on and off like a tap. If you're God's child, you know his grace all the time. Even if you don't feel like it. Don't forget that. And this was Joseph's perspective. His point of view was, wherever I am, I'm his and he is mine. It's about having that perspective, God's perspective. Even when things don't go right, it's trusting that behind the scenes, actually they are. That's not being dismissive of hurt and pain and financial distress and relationship issues. I'm not being dismissive of that at all. But trusting that behind it all, there is a good God who is at work. You see, this is what affected C.S. Lewis. You know the guy who wrote the Narnia books? Yeah, we used to enjoy those, didn't we, darling? I used to do all the voices, didn't I? Yeah. It's 52 years ago today he died, in fact. But C.S. Lewis, he turned away from his original Christian faith for a while because of suffering in the world, amongst many other things. But do you know what brought him back to God and back to the Christian faith? Suffering. <laughs> Actually. Because do you know what he said? He said, I started to realise 
that suffering, as much as been the argument for atheism and against God, well, look at the state of the world. How can a good God be behind all that? And many atheists claim that as, as part of their nugget of why they believe what they believe. He said, actually, I realise that suffering is an argument against atheism and for God and Christianity. And here's how he explained it. He said, no one can, de- can declare that a line is crooked unless they have some notion of what a straight one looks like. What he's saying is, when we see something going on in the world, we've seen the Paris attacks, Boko Haram in Nigeria, they've killed more people than ISIS. Yeah, ISIS are the ones in the, are the media lovelies at the moment. What's going on around the world is horrible. And we can look at it and go, that is wrong. But for something to be wrong, we have to have some notion of what is right. Do you see what I mean? To say that something is wrong, it can't be wrong unless there is a right. And C.S. Lewis came to this point and he came to realise if I see a brokenness around here, there must be something that, there must be an unbrokenness. There must be a wholeness. And even Joseph, having that perspective that this is wrong but therefore there is a right, drove him to be faithful. Whatever we face, we can understand that there is a good God at work behind everything. So that was the first outward mark, that influence. And Joseph got it because of what was going on inside, the inward mark that he held fast. So we can have a choice in suffering. We can decide to get bitter and angry or go away from God. And I've spoken to people just recently who are angry at even the notion of a God because of what goes on in the world or what's gone on in their lives. And I understand it. I do sympathise. I'm not being dismissive at all. But we can also have a choice to go, if this is wrong, there is a right. And that's the one I'm going to cling to. It's because of what happened inside Joseph. The inward mark was that he was holding fast. And here's an example of how it affects and changes the man. See, in chapter 50, Dad has now died. Egypt has mourned. We see the difference in the nation. But his brothers are terrified. Because now Dad has died, their patriarchal protection has gone. And do you remember what they did? Tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery. They ain't forgotten. And they're pretty sure Joseph's not forgotten. And now their protection's gone. What's going to happen next? Verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please... Forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Jesus, um, Jesus, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So he had an opportunity for justice. He had an opportunity to take revenge, didn't he? I was just being nice to you while dad was around. Now he's not. See you later. Couldn't he? But no. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. We see an overview of Joseph's journey. See, more than that, it says, verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. 
And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Holy Spirit at work in us tells us about the right (coughs) that the wrong is compared to and tells us to not let go. And it changes us from the inside out. And that's Joseph's journey as well. He did not get angry at God or let go of God of God at any point. This is huge. This is huge. So what does he do? Carry on reading from verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He could even see the good that was at work already. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, he doesn't go, yeah, I'll forgive you. I'll be over here in my palace if you need me. He says, I'm going to look after you and I'm going to look after your little ones as well. He's even declaring a legacy of protection. And through that, God's people are allowed to flourish in the land of Goshen in Egypt. And actually, even then, in adversity, later on, when the country descended into chaos, they went from the thousands into the millions. So 400 years later, when the great exodus happens, a couple of million of them all get to leave that nation. God allowed them to flourish, and it started here. But how does he know this? He can see the goodness, he can see the food, he can see they're having a lovely time as a family. How can he know about God's future protection? Because of previous promises. How does he know, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive? We look at verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. This is a little bit later. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. How does he know that? Genesis 15 250 years earlier, God has spoken to his forefather, Abraham, and said this. Genesis 15, verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Oral history in these families was exemplary. And Joseph knew that promise. And Joseph had not forgotten that promise. And Joseph could put two and two together and think, that's this happening. Here we are. 400 years time, it's going to really pay off. So let's trust in him. That was his point of view. What he was doing was paying forward the grace that he'd known in his adversity. He was paying it forward to others. So he'd seen providence in a time of famine. And as much as that was hard, this isn't just geographical or serial related famine. I'm talking about spiritual oppression and relationship issues when he was in the pit, when he was in the prison. He saw glimpses of hope. He saw glimpses of, of God's providence. And it started from the heart and it affected two nations. The inside affecting the outside. Do you see what God does? Which is why these are signs and symptoms of us being God's people. See, I used to be in the ambulance service. 
Signs and symptoms are things we talk about all the time. Symptoms are what you feel. If you've got, I don't know, punctured lung, you feel short of breath, you can't quite catch your breath, and you feel faint, you feel the pain. Others will see the change in your colour. They'll see the rapid but shallow chest rise. They'll be able to check the pulse, see the blood pressure. There's signs of the outward look, symptoms of what you feel on the inside. And here with Joseph, and even with us, whatever we go through, we can experience the hope on the inside and people can see the difference that makes on the outside. There's signs and symptoms. As much as there is suffering in this world, and that will stop one day, but while it still goes on, God uses it for his purposes. Many people mean these things for evil, but God means it for good, and he'll use it around, around for his purposes. See, even in a secular way, you see, Africa has got a habit of imprisoning young men with a sense of injustice in the great dream. And years later, when these men emerge, they end up being that nation's free leader. <laughs> You've seen that happening quite a few times. Mandela's probably the most notable example of that. You've got the Robert Mugabe's. <laughs> absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But this pattern emerges quite a lot, even in the secular world. Men are put in prison through adversity... And they have a choice to either use it for good or for evil. Mandela came out very different to how he went in. Came out more reflective, empathic, able to negotiate and facilitate wiser and more a man of integrity in how he conduct that. And that's just in the secular world. God uses that time and time again. Whatever pit we go through, whatever prison we're in, God uses that for good and we have a choice to join in or not. Don't we? See, when we talk about the crooked line and the straight line, and seeing the crooked line of the world, and realising we can only have some notion that it's wrong because we have an idea of what a straight line is. What is that straight line? Who is that straight line? Jesus is more than the straight line. Jesus is the one who drew it. <laughs> Jesus is the artist. See, mass questions... You can have one right answer, you can have a myriad of wrong answers. But there's one right answer. And Jesus declared himself to be the way, the truth, the life. One. No one can come to the Father but by me. To, to know me is to know the Father. And I suggest the cross is the straight line. The cross is where everything comes to a crunch. The cross is where our hurts and our pains and our upsets and our disappointments, they all come to a point where we recognise there is a right who will make good out of this. There is a God who hates this as much as I do and in fact more. There is a God who is making all things new and it starts at the cross. It's at the cross where my wrongs and my crookedness get dealt with. It's a place where all the crookedness that has been done against me gets dealt with. Doesn't dismiss it, doesn't ignore it, treats it with great weight, but deals with it for me. Because I can't, I can't fix broken things. I can't fix myself. <laughs> but he can, 
which is why he suffered on that cross, that we might know freedom, we might know hope. And we get to pay it forward. We get to make a difference. We get to join in. And I love that. We don't get to stand back and watch God at work. We get to roll our sleeves up and join in. The making all things new. Being different. We may not end up in 10 Downing Street like Joseph did. But we all have, we all have influence. We are all salt and light. In your home. Get to make a difference there. In the quarrels and the arguments, we have choices there, don't we, sometimes? <laughs> don't I? In our streets, we get to make a difference in our streets. In our workplaces, we as Beacon in Home Bay, and God willing, beyond one day as well, we get to make a difference. And we can bumble along and pretend everything's all right and hide in the corner. That's when we're usurping our ability to make a difference. We have a choice, don't we? There's just one more verse to read. Jeremiah 17. This is God speaking to his people in a time of adversity, in a time of exile. The majority of the country, of the nation, are a thousand miles away in exile, in a form of prison, if you like. And there's just a few left in and around Jerusalem. This is what God says to them through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17 verse 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. It does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The thought of bearing fruit in the time of drought, that can be you or me. Whatever we're going through, whatever might, may or may not happen in this country, and how it treats Christians, I'm not fearful of that. Because I know if I keep my roots in him, I'll bear fruit in that. If you're having concerns with neighbours or family members, you're struggling with long-term illness, if you keep your roots firmly in him, it doesn't dismiss the hurt and the pain, but you can still bear fruit for him. That makes the world stand up and go, how did that happen? What do I mean by fruit? I mean fruit of the Spirit, inexplicable joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Gentleness, faithfulness, self-control in situations when our first desire is to do the opposite, <laughs> for example. That's bearing fruit. Bearing fruit just by being God's people in small ways and he gets you from going to a restaurant for a meal to sharing the gospel with a crowd of Muslims. Who knows? I'm intrigued to see where that goes later. I'm going to find out some updates from him. And when the heat comes, our leaves will remain green. See, the best message of the gospel isn't just the clever words we use. It's the lives that hold those words up. The way I live, people may not be consciously watching me, but they're watching me. And they know I'm a Christian. 
and they watch my every move. That's not pressure for me to try and get everything right. I've just got to genuinely just keep my roots in him and he'll work the rest out. But whatever comes my way, I trust then that my leaves will remain green and I'll bear fruit. And I think it's a message for all of us this morning. If we trust in him, you'll be surprised what he can do with little old us. Do you like to stand? I'm just going to pray.